Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. The following programme contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from a Copyright Licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. This session, Dead People I Have Known, featuring Shane Carter, was chaired by Steve Braunius and presented by Brandade. Enjoy. Thank you everybody for coming to this Dunedin Writers Festival session sponsored by graphic design company Brandade with musician and author, Shane Carter. (laughs) My name is Steve Braunius, and may I just remind you to please make sure your cell phones are off during this next hour that we have together. There'll be a time a little later on for questions from you lot, and after that, Shane will be available to sign copies of his fantastic memoir, Dead People I Have Known, at the UBS bookstore outside in the foyer. You will note that he will sign them with his left hand. And that's an immediate clue that we're dealing with someone different here, someone maybe a bit special, someone who might even be thought of as a lifelong misfit. I think some of those things about Shane, but mainly I just think of Shane as a dear friend. (coughs) I love Shane, but... I wish to take this opportunity to dispute his account in his memoir of the first time that we met. He claims that I thought to myself, yuck, there's Shane Carter. I have never said yuck in my life. I thought to myself, ugh, there's Shane Carter. (laughs) Yuck is mild, ugh, expresses the kind of fear that Shane long inspired in many people during his long reign as the sneering king of New Zealand rock music. Shane spoke his mind. Shane was cutting. Shane was honest. All those qualities are evident in Dead People I Have Known. It's an amazing book. Fragile and abrasive, with lots of LOLs on either side of the centre of the book, which goes quiet when it tells of a tragic death. It's a record of a lifetime in music and the search for ecstasy and a refusal to compromise. It's a story very much about Dunedin. I got to know Shane when he lived in Auckland and he never once belonged there. He belongs here, the boy from Brockville with his crushes on Virginia Carroll and Marilyn Kenton and Vicky Murray. Brockville smelt of stew, he writes. It was the first to get the snow Its park offered a slide that didn't slide and a creaking roundabout. Young men with half-moustaches fixed cars that sat like broken shells on front lawns. Shane's chapters on growing up here stand up among the best writing about childhood and place ever written in New Zealand. And they set the tone for this lyrical, brooding self-portrait. Shane, 
born 1964, last worked full-time at Radio 4XO in 1984, wrote the classic song She Speeds in 1987, recorded the classic album I Believe You're a Star in 2001, was artist in residence in Bangkok in 2018, and in 2019, right here, right now on this stage, please give a warm homecoming welcome to proud Dunedin resident Shane Carter. Shane, I'd like to ask you about some of these dead people you have known, as per the striking title. And the first people are about your mum and dad. And as, uh, as you write in this book, you know about my role uh, in, in, in that. Uh, I turned up at Shane's door at the exact moment he'd heard that his dad had died. Fourteen years later, I phoned up at the exact moment he got a message that his mum died. I wasn't allowed to see him again after that. <laughs> I never met your mum. I met your dad, Jimmy, uh, and he struck me uh, when I met him and in the book too as uh, a rocker, a chancer, a wanderer, someone a bit broken. And I think some of these qualities uh, are evident in you. Ooh. <laughs> what can you tell me about your dad, Jimmy? Um, my dad, uh, he was a Māori man who was adopted by uh, Pākehā people. And uh, so the Carters were our adoptive family. And uh, he was born up in Auckland. And um, funnily enough, he was born in this house called the House of Bethany, which was a, half, which was a house for... Um, uh, what do they call single mums back in the day? Um, uh, people who were giving up babies for adoption, basically. Mm. And um, so he spent the first six months of his life before he was adopted by the Carters and brought south. Um, funnily enough, I actually flattered twice right next door to the House of Bethany in Grey Lynn without realising my father had been born there. And um, shortly before he died, he came up to Auckland to do um, a video for one of, or to be in a video for one of my songs, and he went to the House of Bethany and found his records there. Um, so he was pretty chuffed with that. Uh, my dad, he was um, a really funny guy, and um, he's a, a gentle man, and um, yeah, I love my dad. Uh, he had his uh, troubles, as we all do, all uh, as you sort of read in the book and all that kind of thing, but... Most of the people in my book, including myself, have got their troubles, and uh, I really didn't want to write a PR sheet or, uh, you know, uh, a, a, buff, a buff job or anything. I wanted to write compassionately about those people, and but also just to accept that, you know, foibles and weaknesses and shortcomings are all part of being human, you know, and uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I, um, it really increased my compassion and empathy for people doing that. And um, yeah, my dad, he died quite young. He was 57 when he died. And um, yeah. You got the alcohol gene from Jimmy, but you also got a spirit from him, I think, didn't you? Some well, no, I actually had alcoholism on both sides of my family, yeah. yeah. But um, uh your dad, he was a curious mix, um, as I said in the book, he's a curious mix of shy and loud. He's, he's a shy guy. You once told me, you said, oh, your dad's really shy. I said, yeah, he's a shy guy. And, um, but he also had this 
extrovert side as well. And my mother was very similar to that. And I guess um, you know, I'm probably kind of similar to that too. Did you know he was fantastically proud of you? Yes, I did actually, ultimately, yeah. What about your mum? Tell me about your mum. So my mum, she was um, quite a, f- a feisty lady. She was, um, she was brought up in the North East Valley. Um, uh, she was adopted out when she was really young, for, uh, when she was five, and went through about 13 foster homes and um, suffered the various um, things that can happen to young kids in those kinds of situations. And, um, yeah, so she had a pretty tough upbringing. And, um, but despite that... Um, yeah, she had a pride and a feistiness to her that I really respected and I still respect about her. And, um, yeah, she died three years ago. Um, she's similar to my dad. She had this very shy sort of side, but um, she was a singer as well. Dad was a musician, so I always thought with both my parents being musicians that, you know, that it was basically what I was born to do, you know. You had uh, several fall- numerous fallings out with mum. Would that be fair? Sure. You write, and I remember you telling me at the time, and I was really struck by it, you write about, um, what was it, a week or two before she died that you walked past her street? Yeah, uh, yeah the day before she died, actually. The day before? Yeah. Um, I guess I can talk about this because it's all in the book. Yeah, I didn't talk to my mother for the last two years of her life, and um, yeah, the day before she died, I was down here, and I walked past her house, and then I went back to Auckland, and then they got hold of me the next day and said, she died, yeah. Mm. That was pretty much the first thing you said to me when I phoned up. How's it going, Shane? Not good. My, my mother's died, died, and I walked past her house yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I think it's quite uncanny that Steve keeps turning up and my parents keep dying. You're, she, she had a huge uh, Leonard Cohen yes. period, didn't she? A long Leonard Cohen period. Do you remember that? Yeah, I did. Well, you know, she had her she had issues with depression and all that kind of thing, so she'd always play Leonard Cohen when she got depressed. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's pretty heavy. And, um, yeah, it was the first um, music that I actually heard which didn't sound like music that was on the radio, and that actually felt heavy. You know, even as a, you know, six-year-old or seven-year-old, I could listen to that music and go, oh, that's really, you know, carrying some gravitas, even though I didn't know that word. And... Um, yeah, so I actually ended up doing, um, recording a cover version of one of his songs. and uh, So Long Marianne. So Long Marianne, yeah. I, I remember when that came out, I was struck by, uh, it seemed to be sung with uncommon passion. And I think in a way it's, it's not so much a song that you're directing as the subject is in the original at, at a lover, but it's almost like a, a song that you're singing as a tribute to your mum. Because you really sing that one. That's coming from a, a heartfelt place. I guess so. I guess she knew that she would... I guess I knew that she would understand the significance of it, yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I like singing with commitment to most... You know, all the songs I sing. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, whether that sort of gave that song the sort of fire it's got, you know, what you're saying, I actually don't know, you know. Probably on a subliminal kind of side, but you know, mm. nothing that I was really conscious about. Yeah, <clears throat> I just like the song. Um, I and said it, and before, it did have a personal resonance, yeah. I said before in the introduction that I think Shane's writing about his um, childhood. I mean, it just stands up with anything published here. It really is pretty incredible writing and reaches a, uh, a crescendo of 
lyricism and, and observation, which you will not see elsewhere. Can I just say, Steve, that um, I, I also think that that's probably the best writing in the book. But I give out, when I've given my book to my friends, they write to me after 120 pages and they go, that's amazing. And then I never hear from them again. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the great things about it is that, you know, you're talking about your, your mum and dad. These are the influences that go into you as a musician. You don't talk so much about, oh, you know, then I studied a, a minor fifth and so forth, and um, you know, you do talk about, you do a lot of musical appreciation in the book, which is really fantastic. Cool. But it's really, this is a book about who you are as a person and as a musician, and those things are incredibly uh, uh, indivisible. And I think a lot of this is coming from your childhood, and you write about it with such intensity. I think that might have surprised you, is that right? The way that you wrote about that? Yeah, well, I had no plan, you know, as far as yeah, what, what I was going to... You know, I had no plan for any tone or what I was going to write or anything like that. But, yeah, I think one of the things about that, though, is that with a lot of those incidents, it was the first time I actually looked at them. Or, you know, I've looked at them and all that kind of... Or, you know, sort of gone back and re-examined the scene. Whereas with all the band stuff and all the rock and roll stuff, I've just talked about that so much. It's actually boring to me, you know. And, um, you know, when I was writing about some of my bands, I thought, oh, yawn. And uh, which is probably page 132, and uh, yeah, but um, that to me was the really interesting stuff. I far preferred writing about the old man that I used to see walking around in Brockville, and I used to wonder what he was up to, and all that kind of stuff. I that to me was way more interesting than writing about being on a record label with my band, you know. And um, yeah, but with the book, I think you know. Um, what I kind of wanted to do by doing a sort of warts and all kind of thing is just to kind of show what it's like to be an artist in this country, actually, and where you come from and the things that shape you and what you're actually thinking, you know. And, you know, being an artist is so often seen as the sort of, uh, you know, non-legitimate thing to do, you know. The old, uh, when are you going to get a real job school? That's just been around forever, you know. And, um, but I've got no problems with the validity of it because it's way more valid than a lot of real jobs. And... Um, uh, I have no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> well, uh, you write about uh, people who don't seem to get featured in the literature in this country. Yes. And uh, it's almost like, why not? Yes, that's what you I know? thought too. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of these people are now dead. Yeah. Uh, and some people out here might know one or two of these names who I'd like to, to ask you about. A guy who just sounds incredible. Uh, often naked, <laughs> called Kerry Hibbert. Yes, well, there's a few good friends of Kerry Hibbert here. Um, he was a great friend of mine. Does anyone here know Kerry Hibbert? Oh, yeah, a few is, yeah. Uh, oh, of course. And, uh, yeah, he was a great friend, um, quite an outrageous character. Um, very outrageous character, actually. And uh, I had took great joy in recounting some of his more outrageous um, th uh, things, but he's a beautiful man. And um, uh, What happened to him? Uh, he died. He um, killed himself and um, a few years ago now. And, uh, yeah. But he was a singer in a band here as well. He was actually the singer of Our Enemy, 
which was um, the band from Otago Boys High School, and we started at Kaikarai College, right? And um, so we really didn't like static. And uh, yeah, so I met Kerry and, um, through um, a mutual friend at a telephone, telephone event at uh, our school. And um, so I was right up for it when I met him, and I said, oh, what, do you th- what do you think about the Sex Pistols? And he said, oh, yes, they're one of the most important bands of the last 20 years. <laughs> So he cut me off at the pass, and then um, yeah, then someone else told me that he made his nose bleed at gigs, and I thought, oh, well, he's actually quite cool, even though his band sucks. And <laughs> the thing is, I'd never actually seen his band, and um, yeah, I'd never heard them. So, uh, but yeah, he turned out to be a great friend. Yeah, but um, yeah, when you're talking about that thing about um, you know featuring sides of life here, that yeah, I don't think they get talked about either. You know, and I can't think about any brochures about Dunedin that write about Dunedin. Or the way that I did it, you know, in that book, you know, or about growing up in Brockville, you know, that's just a whole side of life that you, that you never hear about, you know. And I also, I, I don't want to write a sort of an academic kind of book. I actually wanted to write an anti, anti-academic book, and that it was visceral, and that it really got down into the down and dirty, you know, and quite often the down and dirty about me, um, and the down and dirty about my friends, and um, just about life in this country, you know. And um, I just do think that it's a side that hasn't actually been given much voice, you know. I can't actually think of that many... Look, maybe I don't read enough New Zealand literature or see enough New Zealand films, but I I can't see that many things that actually give um, a voice to, I don't know, sort of the working-class side of life in New Zealand and the struggles that go on out there, um, the epic battles that go on out there that you never read about in fucking Metro magazine. And... um, yeah, so I wanted to give voice to those people, and the, you know, while um, you know, I talk about their, you know, where they screwed up, but you know, there's also littered all through that as well as just sort of these acts of heroism, everyday heroism, you know, that um, yeah, that I really admire and respect, and that I wanted to give voice to that too. I just wanted to acknowledge um, the lives that are going on out there, like my life and. Um, of a lot of the people I grew up with and that don't really get acknowledged that much, yeah. Another dead person who you don't name in the book is a guy who uh, reviewed some kind of uh, chaotic show by Kerry Hibbert. Oh, yeah. Trash Hotel. Did anyone go to Trash Hotel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he took his own life with a... Uh, and you talk about his... his kind of suicide note with mm. incredible instruction to his children. Can mm. you quote that? Oh, it said, please don't smoke, yeah. What was he like? Um, he was a real um, individual and a really cool guy and uh, not afraid to be an individual. I think that's one thing that comes through in my books too, is that, uh, in my book too, is that there's a lot of people who are unafraid to be original, you know, and that is actually quite anti the Kiwi ethos, I reckon. Um, I find in this country a lot of people don't like, you know, that whole thing of not sticking your head up for fear of being bayed down by the crowd. Um, The whole you're not that good, you know, um, insinuation behind a lot of um, uh, New Zealand comments about each other. And, um, but yeah, I found in my life, uh, unfortunately, that a lot of them have died possibly for that reason and that they were adventurous sort of people who went out on the wire, but... Um, they were really original people and cool people and, were, yeah, like I say, they weren't afraid to be different. And I think in such a straight-laced um, society, the way our, that conservative side of our society, um, 
those people were really necessary to bring the colour and also to make you feel less alone in your own thing, you know. Um, you can, it's easier to feel like an outsider in New Zealand. And so it was great to sort of find these other outsider characters and form a community, you know, which we weren't outside that we're actually part of. The coolest person in the entire book is uh, Wayne Elsie. Mm. And it's Wayne's tragic death, which is the centrepiece of the book, which I referred to before. Um, and after you write about that and what happened in stark, surreal detail, uh, for around about 50, nearly 80 pages afterwards, uh, when you're reading it, uh, that chill of his death permeates the next 50 to 80 pages. It's really powerfully done. What did Wayne look like? Shane? Um, I actually wrote a description in the book. He had fine blonde hair. He had a turned up nose and a protrusive top lip. And um, he was quite slim. And... Uh, yeah, that's what he looked like. You two were incredibly close, eh? Yeah, we were good friends. We fell out for a while, I think, as friends do. But yes, we knew each other um, since we were 12, and um, uh, we were in our first band together, and um, uh, our first ever practice was in the basement at his parents' place, um, which is one of my favourite scenes in the book, actually. Yeah, so our first practice, we couldn't actually play, and there's Wayne on bass, and he couldn't play bass, and there's Jeff Harford on drums. Jeff could actually play drums. Uh, there's me, I had a microphone, so I was going to be the singer, because I borrowed my mum's mic. And we had a friend um, whose name was Charles Prod. Well, his name was Daryl, but we all had punk rock names, but his, he called himself Charles Prod after Charlie Pride, the singer. And I was um, Peter Putrid, <laughs> and Jeff was Jeff Nasty. And I don't know if Wayne had a punk rock name, actually. But, yeah, so we started jamming on the song, and it was about um, remedial workshops because that was the most punk thing I could think about writing about. And um, How was yeah, it that you got the microphone? Because Mum had one at home, so... How was it, though, that you stepped up as the singer? Because um, uh, I'd started writing lyrics. I saw the Sex Pistols on TV, and then I just started writing punk rock lyrics about workshops and the Queen... And um, society and how they're trying to keep us down, <laughs> which they still are. And um, yeah, so I started writing these lyrics, but I didn't have, actually have any music. So um, when these guys, and mum had a microphone, she was a singer. So yeah, so I, our first ever performance was actually a cappella at um, uh, Totoku, the um, uh, uh, recreational camp that, in South Otago. And we did it um, a cappella and threw sausages at the audience <laughs> and foamed um, toothpaste out of our mouths and vomited wheat bix because we thought that's what punk rock was. <laughs> and uh, wrote a, a, sung a song about me, uh, the society called Mentally Dearranged. And, uh, yeah, so this first practice with, uh, in Wayne's Garage, that was our first attempt at um, you know, legitimate musical expression, which we were incapable of. So yeah, so what, what, so, yeah there's just this horrible racket going on, and there's drumming and bass. <laughs> and we were doing a song about workshop, but the, mo the major moment of inspiration was when Charles Prod picked up a wrench and started bashing it on a, on a bench, and I got all inspired and started hitting a hammer too. And um, yeah, that was our first uh, kind of song. <laughs> The beginning of a legend. <laughs> Here in the workshop by board games. But you weren't, you, you know, you weren't like a natural front man. You know, you weren't one of these sort of 
confident and unbearable sons of bitches at school. No. You were quite shy. Uh, as a very young kid, uh, as you write it in the book, uh, somewhat of a crybaby. No, I was getting punched in the face all the time, man. <laughs> no, you cried for no apparent reason. And indeed, indeed, renditions of Happy Birthday you described as a requiem for doom. Did I now, Steve? <laughs> yeah, I used to be really disturbed by Happy Birthday, and that was one of my weird little kinks. So for about two or three years, I, I would just start freaking out when people started singing Happy Birthday and um, hide under the table or flee the birthday. So, yeah, I got really scared that they, I wouldn't get invited to any more birthdays, so I tried to bring it into control. But uh, when I still hear it, I sort of go, oh, happy birthday, oh. It's, it's just the drone of it. And how everyone's sort of, really reluctant to sing it. It's these sort of complex sensitivities which come through in uh, the music you've made over the years and also, indeed, uh, in your book. Uh, and they are part of what make you, as you uh, describe yourself quite emphatically uh, in the book, uh, a rock star. Uh, and it's a really fascinating section uh, in that book where Shane confronts this and he writes quite boldly, I am a rock star. And he talks about what makes one and what doesn't make one. And it's not fame, is it? It's some kind of essence. Is that right? Yeah, I think that is a quality. I know rock stars who perform to two dozen people, you know, and um, it is a quality, and as I also write in the book, it's not something that you can put on and, um, or that you can contrive, or, yeah, or put on or contrive, you know, it's just actually just a natural quality. I, I think that's the way with um, any good performer, really. It's... Um, the mystique and the charisma, you know, like that's, uh, people have just sort of got that and some people haven't and that's why, or most people have, or, you know, haven't in a performing kind of context and that's why really good performers are kind of special people, you know, and, um, uh, yeah, and I kind of wrote that section and I kind of knew that it was kind of arrogant to say that, but I, I also believe that, you know, like, and as I also say in the book, I'm useless at heaps of things, you know, but that's one, one of my areas of expertise, that's one of the things I'm good at, you know. Some people can fix a car, you know, I can't fix a car, I respect that, you know, good skills under the bonnet, man. But, um, yeah, so everyone's got different skills, and, uh, but being a performer and a rocker, that's my skill, you know, and it's something that I've always been really dedicated to. And as I also write in the book, you know, I was this kid who grew up being beaten up in Brockfall and um, to all of a sudden have this power behind the mic and to be able to actually have your say as well, um, yeah, it was a really um, amazing power to have, you know, and yeah. You do have that quality and, and indeed I'm sort of uh, thinking that, you, you know, you, you have it all the time. I can pick it up on the stage now talking to you and it's very annoying to be a friend, to be your friends with someone who has that. Very annoying indeed. <laughs> I like you when you're a lot more normal right. and don't radiate charisma. So right. could you please oh, okay. stop that? Okay. Um, but not... Uh, so conversely, you, you've known people who perform to a couple of dozen people and they've got, they're rock stars. And conversely, there would be people who perform to, oh, 100,000 people who are not. Would oh, that I, be I true? Say, yeah, I'd say that, yeah. Do you think Neil Finn is a rock star? Oh, he's a popular entertainer, yeah. <laughs> He's a very nice man. 
Really? Right. Yeah. Are you referring to the, to the fiery feud? The fiery <laughs> feud. <laughs> yes, and what happened is that um, the Herald, probably quite a few people have seen it, most of New Zealand have seen it, um, they picked up this outrageous story about uh, me and Neil Finn where I wrote about my various um, indiscretions with Neil Finn. And, um, but, you know, it really pissed me off because the thing is I felt like it diminished um, the rest of my book, actually, and it was a really typical sensationalistic thing to do. It was just the obvious thing to do. And, um, but as far as a fiery... It's not a fiery feud. He doesn't care. I, I don't care either, you know. To me, Tell it's just, me this, it's just this funny little table incident. Tennis. Yeah, well, so our feud started many <laughs> years ago. <laughs> And then I had, we actually worked together and I had the opportunity to play him at table tennis and I was feeling the heat, you know, I really wanted to win this game and um, happily I did. Satisfying? <laughs> Extremely satisfying. <laughs> oh, you know, I was very modest, like, oh, good game, bro, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I was really thrilled that you wrote about that because we've talked about it over the years and it's a comedy masterpiece, the way you Thank write Thank you, about. Steve. Well, that's the way... I, I didn't see it as this fiery feud. I just sort of saw it as this ongoing gag. And <laughs> I keep meeting Neil Finn and uh, all these funny things happen. <laughs> no, and uh, so, yeah, but like I say, it was... Um, to me, yeah, it's just sort of this incidental gag. It's certainly not the centrepiece, yeah. Well, it is very funny, and indeed the whole book, a lot of the book, is actually really, really funny. Mm. There's heaps of one-liners... And if it's true that with a title like that, that people will talk about it or think about it in terms of the dark side, which is prevalent, it's also true that it's very funny, don't you think? You were deliberately so. wanting that, weren't you? Well, I didn't actually deliberately write, you know, set out to, for it to be funny. I didn't, you know, there's no plan. It was just what, I just sort of wrote it and I thought, oh, that's funny. And it was just that kind of thing where so often things of great importance that in hindsight they're just funny you know and things that you think are really important well they're just not you know and you can just laugh about it and um but you know that's life as well there's dark shit and there's just really funny stuff and there's joy as well so yeah i really wanted to put that across yeah you laugh at yourself a fair bit which is good and cringe at yourself a fair bit of course yeah. uh, these spells, uh, which I'm thinking of, when uh, you were drinking and would say shit on stage. Yep. Uh, and you talk about, you confront that pretty openly. Yeah, sure. You did say some pretty bad things, didn't you? Oh, yes, I did, Steve. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Yep. What do you think was the worst one? Do you think it was when you said to somebody... There's no fucking way I'm going to repeat that, man. <laughs> oh, well, I'll repeat it for you, then. Oh. Uh, I think it's the one where you say to somebody in the audience, I hope you get run over. Oh, thanks, Steve, yeah. <laughs> but you stopped doing that after Wayne died, is that right? I did, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I was very confrontational, you know. I thought that was the whole part of, uh, well, it was drunkenness, but it was also the punk rock ethos. And, uh, yeah, but... Um, uh, I did, yeah. It was quite noticeable to me that I just, um, after Wayne died, yeah, I was actually quite quiet on stage after that, in between songs anyway, yeah. Mm. Mm. This drinking, which has, you know, blighted you on, on several times, uh, you talk about the first time that you kicked it, uh, you came up with a fantastically inspired cure. Uh, you took ecstasy 
Yeah. Is that right? And that seemed to work for 13 years. It did. How, how is that, Shane? Why did it work? Hmm. Well, I also write about another friend who kicked a major addiction who is, uh, you know, a, a hardcore opiate user. Peter Gutteridge, yeah. Well, don't say his name. Mm. And, uh, well, yeah, Peter, but um, I talked about Peter's thing and um, how he took psychedelics to rid that, uh, to get over that. And, yeah, look, I took ecstasy for the first time and I was 23 and I was drinking hardcore and, um, yeah, it was, it was an incredibly profound experience and, you know, I've tried it since then, it was nothing like that, since then it's kind of sitting alone in a nightclub at half past three with this horrible pounding music and I'm feeling really desolate, desolate and alone, but um, that first time was amazing and um, yeah, it totally turned me around and that those feelings of sort of positivity and um, stuff that it engenders, well, I think in some way that was the first time I'd ever actually felt those feelings, uh, to that um, degree anyway. And um, I also write in the book how I believe with um, psychedelics and stuff like that, um, uh, it, um, uh, they, uh, your ego gets subsumed and so your ego disappears and because of that all the rationales that you use to justify your behaviour, they disappear as well, you know. And I read about um, psychedelics being used and therapy and all that kind of stuff, and I can totally see that. Because that's the thing with addiction and damaging yourself, is that you have your rationales to justify carrying on doing that. And then when all of a sudden your ego goes, yeah, that's how you can get the big um, switch in your thinking and turn on a really big light. And, um, yeah, so I really believe in that. Also, um, just the cosmic thing about psychedelics as well. I read of a study recently where... um, uh, they said that I, uh, there's probably medical pe- people who study medicine out here and who understand a lot better than I do, but base, the basic premise was that we have a, a suppressor and an editor in our brain to stop too much information coming in because if we actually took in the information that was around us, we'd actually be overwhelmed by it. And I've had psychedelic experiences where I'm just completely aware of the m- molecular flow around me and... Um, uh, there is a, a molecular flow around us, and I, but it sort of manifested itself visually, and uh, it was a window to that world. And I think um, with psychedelics, it gets rid of that editor, and you take in some of that information that is just way too much to take in. <laughs> yeah. You open the book uh, really with a uh, hilarious but yet dismal <laughs> account of uh, taking ecstasy and being invited on stage to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award from Helen Clark. (laughs) Five seconds or so after someone informs you that your girlfriend is having an affair with somebody in New York. Quite memorable, really, wasn't it? Yes, it was, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Look, that was just one of the weirdest and most traumatic nights of my life, actually. It's just so weird, man. And, um, yeah... uh, I don't want to propagate prop- drug use or anything like that, folks, but um, yeah, we'd done a tour on the Straight Jacket Fits, we'd done our Reformation tour, and uh, we thought we were just going to hide in the corner, we'd played at this, the B-Net Awards and all this kind of stuff in the Auckland Town Hall, and we thought we were going to hide away in the corner the whole night, so someone offered us this ecstasy, which we took, 
Anne is coming on, it was really rugged and quite full on, um, but we were in hiding and then all of a sudden Helen Clark gets up on stage and starts making this speech and then about a minute into it I think, oh my God, and um, realised that the subject of the speech was me and that I was actually going to have to go up onto the stage and shake her hand and then make a speech into a microphone. And um, so I did that and it wasn't much of a speech and the whole time I was just really hoping that she wouldn't look in my pupils and um, her secret service guy was standing behind her going like this. <laughs> so yeah, and other weird things happened that night and um, yeah, it was really weird. But the background of it, of being told this uh, revelation about your girlfriend, or soon-to-be ex-girlfriend. Oh, yes. Well, yeah, well, that happened as well. That looked so... I wrote, there's actually several odd incidents in that book, yeah. But I just thought it was such a weird night and sort of kind of an outrageous story that I thought it would be a great one to um, open my book. But I also thought um, one thing about that story too um, was just about the whole thing of just being slightly askew with the rest of the world. And I thought that was um, sort of set up a lot of the themes in the book as well. It's a hell of a cruel way to find out, wasn't it, about that woman? You know, this woman came up and told me, oh, your girlfriend's having um, an affair in um, New York. Did you know that? And I was like, no. And then she asked me for my number. (laughs) Why did she tell you that? Well, I don't know. She asked me for my number. I don't know. Mm. I have to say that, uh, and the book... Uh, details it uh, in, in some, in some, uh, with some feeling that uh, I've really never known anybody, uh, Shane, uh, who has been so sort of consistently, almost professionally heartbroken as you. <laughs> And, uh, but that's because you hear it from me, Steve, and you know, so it's always my self-pity, and oh, mate, you won't know, guess what's going on, but you know, that's my story, and um, you know, um, I'm sure there's other p- people that, uh, that, you know, that I've been involved with who have been hurt, and, um, but um, uh, yeah, I guess that's their, their story. Again, know? it's something you don't shy away from, though. What's it, that? Uh, heartbreak. It's part of life, man, yeah. 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 So you know, that's one of the most strongest feelings you can get. You know, it's one of the it's probably second to death as far as grief goes, eh? Yeah. Um, it also inspired a lot of my music and uh, you know, I write that. I write about the people I've been with and the relationships I've had, you know, they're the people who make me feel and so uh, they're the people that I've written music about as well. Uh Evelyn Waugh, when he's writing in um, Brideshead Revisited, uh, his narrator says uh, very near the beginning of the book that the theme of the novel is memory. I think the theme of your memoir uh, actually is love. It's a kind of a love story, lots of broken love, damaged love, mum and dad, your love life, and also these dead people you have known. You're right. Oh, cheers, Steve. Thank you. I think take no, that as a it's compliment. A, it's cool. a really substantial and beautiful book. And you, you write very early on, and this is almost like your first brush. Uh, it wasn't with death, but it was with tragedy. And the guy who dived into the uh, river up in the Alexandra when you were a kid, 
and was paralysed. And you see later on in, the news, in a newspaper, many years later, it's the same guy. Mm. Uh, he was a kid then and you find out he's an adult and he's been paralysed and you stare at his photograph many, many years later and you write, and this is sort of indicative of the kind of writing that Shane has throughout this book, really thoughtful. Um, you write that you are hoping to discover comfort or solace or a logic for a senseless event by staring at this photo. Was there any of that? Or was it random? What was random? What happened to this guy? And in a sense... Oh, and for an explanation of the event or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in, I'm sort of asking that because it might be key to talking about... That's a lot of dead people you have known. It is a hell of a lot. It is a lot more than I have known. It is a lot more than most people have known. Well, so this experience, is there a sense in it? Is there a logic in it? What's it about, Shane? In the, are you talking about the incident with the man, with the man in the river? Well, that, that, that gives rise to the question. No, I think with describing that incident was, you know, you know so I was six, and this guy, um, he was um, getting around with us because he was, um, we had this teenage girl with us, and I was kind of, you know, having a summer romance at the Alexandra Motor Camp. But he dived, in, he dived into a swimming, pool, a swimming hole, we were going swimming, and it was muddy, and um, yeah, it turned out that it was about a foot deep or something, and I uh, got paralysed. Yeah, no, that to me was the first um, incident where the randomness of life became really, you know, unfair things happening to people, you know, and um, how there are no scales of justice to decree what is fair and what isn't fair. You know, that is the randomness of life. So. Um, yeah, I guess that's coming up, that comes in through all the book because, you know, as you say, there's dead people in it and some of them died really unfairly and didn't get to have the life that they deserved, you know, but that's life and, and, and death as well. And a lot of people have said to me, oh, you know, so many dead people and I was kind of surprised by that because I thought, well, people die every day and we're all going to die and it's happening all around us and it's just a part of life, you know. And people, people saying, oh, dead people you, I have known as sort of, you know, all this sort of confronting title. Well, to me it's not, you know, it's just it's, it's the way it is. And, um, yeah. You've lived to tell this tale. You are not one of these dead people. Do you think you have some kind of resilience, Shane? Is that a quality that you recognise in yourself? Um, yes, I do think I've got resilience, yeah, sure. You've got to, you know. Well, I guess anyone has to have resilience to keep going. And, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I have, yeah I've, got, I've got backbone, you know. I was talking about my mother earlier, you know, she had backbone. And uh, that was one, uh, that was a good example that she set to me. Uh, uh, don't back down, you know, keep coming back. And it's a continual, don't let the wear you down, you know. It's a continual struggle to be an artist, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. I think that was another thing I wanted to write in my book as well. You know, so many people say, oh, I can't believe that you've got no money. <laughs> I go, yeah, I can't believe it either. And, uh, yeah. So, yes, I did want to um, give voice to that. Just, you know, it is, it's really hard to be an artist, and um, especially in this country, purely because of the size of the population. And uh, the money's shit. And... Um, but I also realise that that is part of the trade-off of being an artist, and there's been, you know, geniuses who die paupers, and that's just the, 
them's the breaks, but you know, they didn't have a nice house, but um, they've got this incredible work that lives on, you know, centuries later and resonates and connects with other people, you know. I think, you know, I think just off on a tangent, you know, I, I, I do mentoring with kids around here and um, at the high schools, and, you know, I always try to tell them that, you know, playing music is actually a noble thing to do, you know. And why I think it's noble is that music makes people feel better, and um, it does, it uplifts the spirit. And you can't put a um, financial price on that, but it's priceless. And so to actually have the gift or the ability to actually give that to people, um, that's just a really valuable thing, which is constantly undervalued. And, um, uh, yeah, so um, there's a frightening, it's just a yeah. There's a frightening alternative to being an artist... And that's a, uh, a term or a word which... Um, Being a square. Yes, look, you may have forgotten this, but I actually taught you that word. We were talking one day and I said, so-and-so no, is a fucking square. No, and you your didn't eyes, actually. Your eyes lit up and that, book, that word is studded throughout this book. And I want, to, <laughs> I want to complete my question line by asking you about one leading Square, one of New Zealand's <laughs> premier squares, who you worked with as a young man at Radio 4XO. Tell the good people here about Mike Hosking. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit of a square. <laughs> and, um, you know, I worked with him. Look, I was a kid when I was working. I was 17 when I worked at 4XO, and uh, he was 18, I think. And um, he turned up with um, his big radio voice. Oh, g'day, Shane, how you doing? And uh, <laughs> it's 90 degrees and it's 10 to 10 and uh, this is this hour's cash call total. And, uh, yeah, so he was kind of this precocious um, square with um, a really big radio voice and um, he used to smoke really pungent, um, those little mini cigars and he always used to wear too much cologne. And that's my Mike Hosking story. Thanks very much. <laughs> I would like to open... Uh, Questions now from uh, the floor. Uh, Shane, as you can tell, is a very eloquent guy who can address a wide range of questions. So, uh, yeah, is there anybody out there who would like to pose one to our guest of honour, Shane P. Carter? Oh, come now. This chap over there. Yeah, I was just wondering um, what was the process for writing one of your... One of my favourite songs of yours, uh, Crystallated, because it was quite a departure and a sort of really kick-ass tune that you Cheers, finished the set with um, at the Cook. And, yeah, it's a really uh, good tune. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, like I write in the book that uh, Crystallated was the first record that I put out after um, Straight Jacket Fitz's ill-fated Arista deal, where we got a really big contract in America and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, uh, it kind of all fell to bits and it didn't work and um, it were a relationship with the, with the label anyway and so I sort of came back to New Zealand feeling just a wee bit violated by my whole industry experience and um, so uh, um, Crystallator was a real um, middle finger to the experience that I just had and it was actually produced by this man here behind the mixing desk, Mr Tex Houston ladies and gentlemen <laughs> So we actually recorded that song with Tex down in Fish Street because Tex had a studio down there and um, we did it live in two takes 
And um, yeah, look, um, yeah, I love that tune too. And I was, well, I was just sort of sitting there in my practice room one day, and I, I had the Ebo, which is this magnetic device you hold over the guitar, and it does this sort of drone. But if you actually smash it onto the strings, it goes, eh, 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 and um, then if you move it down the string, the string it starts making a, a, a tune. Eh, 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 eh. So, um, yeah, just came across that and um, wrote this sort of one note around it. But, yeah, that's, that's one of my favourite records too. And what I really like about that is it's uh, just really spontaneous and completely unanal and um, quite unsquare. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, re- I really like that one too. Is Fish Street down by the wharves? It is, yeah. Is that so it's the... right by the wharves. That's where I took you for your driving lesson, right. Steve. Uh, that... uh, <laughs> can I have another one tomorrow? <coughs> no, no, man, it was way too traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> so I got given a, um, um, a crib out of Anamoana uh, through a mutual friend, and I thought, oh, man, that's because I was thinking about that I'd like to write something, because I, I came back to Dunedin um, about three years ago after living in Auckland for ages, and... Um, yeah, I thought, well, I'll go down to Dunedin and I'll write this book that I always thought I'd write, you know, it's, I'd always planned to write at some point or another. So I got, I got a place out there and that was incredible, you know, it was an incredible environment to write in because, you know, you're 10k from the nearest shop. Um, I had to lean into a particular window pane to make my mobile work. You know, I was like this, so I was actually suffocating on every call because my face was like this in the curtain. And, um, yeah, but that was an amazing environment to write in and... Um, so I went out there, I started writing, um, I said in another interview that the process of writing was like trying to pass a fridge, and that's what it was like initially, it was v- quite hard. And um, uh, so I wrote for, for a few months, and um, I, look, I honestly spent months on that opening scene that you're talking about, Steve, in fact, that, yeah. And um, then I left it for about four or five months, because I had to go do some music stuff, and well, the whole time while I left it, I thought, oh, I, I think what I've written is actually really bad. And um, so I was, too, I was too actually afraid to go back and look at it because I was convinced that it was going to be terrible. And I did go back and look at it. And um, I actually messaged you, Steve, that day and said, oh, look, I've just read my draft. And guess what? It's shit. And uh, it was, but that kind of made me realise, I kind of recognised what was wrong with it. I, I couldn't actually hear my voice in it. And um, so that was actually valuable just to go through that to make that discovery. So once I realised that I had to speak in my own voice and sort of figured out what that was, then I wrote it all, yeah, I wrote 150,000 words in five and a half weeks, and that's just stupid, but um, yeah, I just thought I'd go for it, you know, while the flow's on, and so that's pretty much what ended up in the book, yeah. I did sleep, yeah, but it was just really long, you know, 16-hour days, just riding hard out and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I think the actual, as I was saying before, the first 120 pages, which people really like, uh, but that's, I think that is the strongest bit of the book, and that's, that's where I really thought about it. Uh, well, I thought about all of it, but I really went deeply into that and wrote it wrong, but then went back and wrote it right. I think in the second half of the book, it's more about sort of my rock experiences and um, sort of more chronological, not so impressionistic or something. And um, but then again, that's valid too because that was a story that I had to, that I felt like I had to tell. And um, yeah, I just wondered if you got any useful help from your editor when you were writing. Yes, I did. Um, well, for, yeah, so I, I wrote the book for about a year and a half, and I didn't actually show it to anybody. And um, the first draft I sent to Steve, 
because he's my mate, and um, I res- really respect Steve as a writer, and he gave me um, really golden advice, actually. Like, the first thing I sent him was this 150,000 sprawling, um, sprawling mess kind of thing. So he gave me great advice. I sort of went back and kept working on it. Then I sent another um, um, draft to my um, editor, to the person who ended up being my editor, who is um, Ashley Young, just back there. Good on you, Ashley. And um, oh, she'll love that, yeah. Oh, Ashley, do you want to stand up? <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, that was also when it was in its sprawling stage. She was great. She gave me some really nice feedback as well. And then I had to decide um, who I was going to go with um, as far as publishers go. And I had a couple of um, offers. And funnily enough, the only other publishing company I was seriously considering going with, they said, look, you've got to take, you know, they said there's quite a bit of stuff that needs to go out. Um, You know, for instance, maybe we can get rid of some of the Neil Finn stuff. And I was like, no way, man. (laughs) And uh, so VUP didn't say that. So that's why I went with VUP. But I also knew that um, Ashley would be be my editor. And um, uh, I'm a fan of her writing. Um, She's written some beautiful stuff. And I thought, oh, man, if I um, hook up with Ashley, well, it's going to be a really good book. And, yeah, she was gold. And... um, yeah, uh, actually it was quite a smooth ride through the editing process, wasn't it? Yeah, we just didn't, you know, it was all, all really good. She challenged me on some stuff, you know, which I thought was, um, which was good, you know. And uh, the points she made were really pertinent. And um, yeah, uh, I think with um, Ashley and Steve, you know, I felt really, um, I wouldn't say privileged, but uh, it was really good to... Uh, I don't know. I, I just felt like I had a really talented and well-intended and, um, uh, you know, really great team, sort of support team with those people, yeah. We've got time for uh, one more question. There's a hand over there. Just speaking of teams, I'm um, just wondering about your football team. Have you got anyone you're playing with at the moment? I, look, my football, you know, I played football all my life. Uh, I, I couldn't actually find it... Uh, it's the only thing I miss about Auckland is my football buddies. And the beautiful thing about Auckland is that people from all... You know, it's quite a cosmopolitan place. So, you know, you play with African people and Argentinian people. And uh, it's really beautiful being able to play that game with people that you can't necessarily talk the same language to. But, you know, you talk the same language with the ball. Love it. But I haven't actually found a team down here. Bro, I just don't know if I can be bothered going along saying, oh, can I be your friend? Can I play? <laughs> and uh, so, Yeah. <laughs> Which is um, basically the way it goes with football, right? Can I be your friend? Can we play? Yeah. Shane Carter will be signing books at the UBS stall uh, at the cessation of this, which is in a minute. I uh, more than commend or recommend this book. Um, I had a text from a mutual friend just earlier today who was also a writer who had got to about page 150 of Shane's book and his sentiment uh, was uncannily parallel to my feeling when I began reading this book and that was, oh, why fucking bother writing when this guy is so much better than us? It's really an incredibly sustained and beautiful piece of writing at the beginning of the book and then the narrative takes over and you enter the musical world of Straightjacket Fitz and Dimmer, the tragedy of Wayne Elsie's death, and much, much else. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Shane Carter.
This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation.